The purpose of this podcast is solely for patient education. It is not intended to evaluate, diagnose, treat, or cure disease. Views expressed are those of the podcasters and not their affiliate. Any medical questions or concerns should be addressed by the listener's physician or care provider. Listening to this podcast does not constitute a patient-physician relationship between the listener and the podcaster. We do hope the podcast can help enhance the listener's own medical experience. Welcome back to this week's episode of Everything Your Doc Wants You to Know and Doesn't Have Time to Tell You. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform about health matters affecting adults, from latest research updates to tips on navigating the healthcare system and everything in between. I'm Kirsten. And I'm Lindsay. How are you, Lindsay? I'm great. How are you? Good, good. Welcome back to our listeners, too. We're uh, quickly approaching the end of the year here. I think um, just, you know, getting down to the wire. Right. Yeah. Christmas is coming fast. And we'll be done by the time we release this episode. Yep. So. So we'll... We're turning to think about, we're starting to think about New Year's resolutions. Exactly, yeah. So we thought this episode today would be a great one to kind of, you know, if you're somebody who's done New Year's resolutions in the past, think about this topic. And if you haven't, maybe this would uh, be something to get you started on. Um, we're talking about advanced care planning today and uh, definitely an important topic to think about. It's something I think that most of us don't want to spend the time thinking about end of life and what we right. want, but it's so important. I think it's interesting how, you know, when we have people do, for example, birth planning, when somebody's expecting and they're planning how they want their birth to go, it's pretty easy to get buy-in from patients and have right. them fill out the birth plan and what they want and how they want things to go. When we talk about end of life planning, it's a lot more difficult. Right. Yeah. And I think it's just the nature of the the topic but right. I think it's it's equally important very much so yeah I think yep. for that person who's dying and for all the family who's trying to support them through it exactly so we're lucky to have Gail Christopher with us today and she's uh, been a nurse for 40 years and has had experiences in many areas um, including clinical nursing surgery utilization management wellness coordination and long-term care In 2003, she obtained an MSN from UND with a focus on nursing administration. She currently works for Sanford Health in Fargo and is the lead with the advanced care planning team under the care management umbrella. In April of 2019, she became a certified Sacred Passage end-of-life doula. She received training through the Conscious Dying Institute in Boulder, Colorado, and has worked much of her career with the geriatric population with a special interest in this area. She's a North Dakota native and has has lived here all of her life. She has three children and five grandchildren. I think we have a really important topic to discuss today, and we are so excited to have Gail with us. And uh, Gail, if you could just give a one-liner about yourself, and then we'll get started. Okay. I am an RN, um, and I work with the advanced care planning team at Stanford. Um, And our main goal is to work with patients 65 and older, to assist them in uh, writing their advanced care directive. Great. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. We're really excited to be able to do this episode with you. Um, uh-huh. I'm very happy to do it. Thank you. Before we jump into the main content, I just wanted to ask you a question about something in your bio. You said that you're a certified sacred passage end of life doula. And I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about that. Uh, well, it's been interesting. Um, like I said, with my background in um and my interest in uh, end-of-life issues. Um, there was another um, person here from Sanford that went, and we went to be trained as doulas together. And I think uh, what it brings is just a little bit more of a depth 
to how we look at um, end of life. Um, part of, uh, you know, a doula's role could be many different things, working with patients at the bedside, working with their families, um, also being out training in the uh, in organizations and in the community. One of the biggest things I was interested in is a question if we had three months to live, what would be the best three months that we could have? And there, there's actually a format for a care plan that you can help a patient write that says, you know, this is where I am in these different areas of my life and this is where I would like to be at the end of my life. So part of it is to help them work through that and, and what are some practical things that you can do to help them meet some of their goals. And of course, sometimes there, there isn't anything you can do. Uh, say, for instance, if you had a family member that they wanted to connect with or they wanted to um, have a better relationship with, you might not be able to change that relationship, but you might be able to help them write a letter. So from their standpoint, you might be able to help them work through some of that. Um, so I think it's kind of demystifying um, death, and I think a big part of it is um, how do we go from uh, this fear that we have about death to making it something that we can honor and make a beautiful experience um, in cases where, um, where we're able to do that. That's really neat. I hadn't heard of that role before, but it sounds yeah, like it yeah. has potential to be really impactful. And I think you touched on kind of an important point about how how our society is so fearful of death and and we kind of avoid any discussion surrounding it. Exactly. Um, and with my background in long-term care, um, I, I feel like it was very often the family who was having a hard time letting go. Um, oftentimes the resident or, or the person, you know, that had the chronic illness or was very sick, um, they kind of knew what they wanted, but oftentimes it was the family that they didn't want to hurt them or, or they didn't want to leave them or whatever. So I became very interested in the end-of-life issues at that point. In fact, uh, when I did my master's work, I focused on culture change and long-term care. Um, so the end-of-life program uh, that we had started at the nursing home I was the director of nursing at, we really looked at how do we change this whole focus on death and we started taking, um, having the hearse come to the front of the building, and we walked that person through the building. Um, anyone who was working at the time would stop and honor that person that we were walking out the door. And the staff that worked with the um, person actually walked them out to the hearse, helped put them in. Um, so I think that, you know, we really need to change that stigma that this can be a very, very beautiful, sacred passage, um, uh, something like birth. It's a very sacred thing, and how can we change how we look at that, uh, whether it's somebody that has a very terminal illness or somebody that um, is aging and ready and ready to leave us in transition. That's really neat. That was a very rewarding uh, experience. Yeah, so. I would imagine it would be. It's so hard, I think, to change the culture of just not wanting to talk about it, you know, trying to avoid it until the last minute possible, and I've seen... Um, you know, in, in my patients, there's definitely different perspectives on thinking about death. Some people want to ignore it till the very last moment possible. Others are willing to think a little more about what they might want and how they might want that to look. I think it's important because a couple of reasons. One, I think there's some statistic that 94% of us will spend the last four years of our life requiring assistance with at least one activity of daily living. So we're all going to have a period of life where 
we require help and assistance. And so that's that's different. I think if you ask people, you know, how they want the end to go, we all kind of expect that we'll we'll function at our highest level and then all of a sudden be gone. Right. And so I think we have to get out there that that's probably not reality. And so we need to think about what matters to us in that that time that we're going to need help. And that quality of life is going to be different than what we maybe imagined in the best case scenario is probably not going to happen. Right. And I would say similarly, um, there, you know, as people get more sick and more frail, they end up in the hospital progressively more. And we see this cycle of recurrent hospitalizations and worsening functional status. And um, if people haven't really thought about what they want, then that just becomes a vicious cycle and they may end up passing away in the hospital, which maybe wasn't consistent with their wishes, as opposed to planning ahead and thinking, you know, I don't necessarily want to spend the last the time that I have in the hospital um, and I'm going to get care at home somehow. Yeah, I think that's such a good point. Um, when we do our advanced care planning, one of the questions we do ask is, you know, where, where would you see yourself or, you know, where, what are your thoughts and feelings about where you would like to die and how would you like that to look? So that is one of the questions that we do broach when we do, we're doing these. And I think some to kind of acknowledge that probably right now, I don't know what the numbers are, but we spend most of our um, medical dollars on people's last two months of life yes. because of the things we're doing to them that often are not helpful and more harmful at that time. Yeah, probably at least not improving quality of life. Even if we're expanding quantity by days or weeks, quality is not being um, improved for sure. Gail, can we, let's get down to the to the basics here for a minute, because you mentioned advanced care planning, and that's kind of your focus right now. Can you just give us a really basic definition of what that is? What does that mean for people who maybe don't know? Sure. Advanced care planning used to be called a health care directive or a living will, and that may be the verbiage that people understand a little better. Um, when it was changed to advanced care planning, I'm not that um, confident on, but I think it's even been somewhat confusing to the healthcare, um, uh, healthcare community on when that verbiage was changed. Basically what it is, it's the process of deciding your own future healthcare. Um, it can make your wishes, um, it makes sure that your wishes will be carried out if you cannot speak for yourself. Advanced care planning will help you and your family to be ready in case of a major illness or injury. So it's basically thinking ahead to those times when you cannot speak for yourself, who would you want to speak on your behalf? Perfect. Yeah, I think that's that's helpful for people to understand just what it, what it is exactly. And from your experience, would you say a lot of people um, do take the time to do this or is this something where we haven't been very successful in the past? Well, if you look at some organizations out there, I know I think I heard that Mayo was in the 90% um, 90 some percent as far as where they're at. And I know that like um, Gunderson Health in uh, La Crosse, Wisconsin, who started the program we use, they are like up to 98%. So they have really made it, um, they have really made it their focus to get this advanced care planning done. Right now, I think that we are under 50% with a goal of getting to 50% as soon as possible. 
but I would really like to see us get up in that 90-some percent. Absolutely. Yeah, I think as we're educating, as we're working with the physicians, and um, here in 2020, we're doing what we're calling a reboot, and we're going back to the clinics because of staff turnover and different issues, it's very hard to always keep people on the same page. So we're going back and we're doing this reboot and we're going to be doing some retraining on how do we at least get the referrals into our system so that uh, we can have somebody go and visit um, with, with them. The focus is basically people 65 and older, but I think there's so many people with chronic illness that are younger than that, that I think that it isn't always shouldn't just be our goal to do 65 and older, but I think that's some of the metrics that are being looked at. What do you think are the biggest barriers to having people do an advanced care plan? Um, I think people feel that they need to be sick to do them. Like, I'm in pretty good health right now, um, so I don't need to worry about it. Or another thing may be, well, my children know what I want, so therefore I don't really need to worry about it. Um, Sometimes I think they get scared because so many of the physicians are, or I shouldn't say physicians, providers are bringing it up now, do you have one? And they're like, is something wrong? Am I getting worse? Is my health declining that all of a sudden I'm getting a call about writing this advanced care plan? Um, I think people think it's for the older, for elderly, um, where when you look at writing an advanced care plan, really it only goes into effect when you can't speak for yourself. And things happen at every age, uh, from car accidents to strokes. I mean, you name it, where people can't speak for themselves. And oftentimes there may be children involved. Um, so it, it's like there isn't really a specific age, but we are targeting that 65 and older group. Do you, can you think of other reasons that we're scared to, to think about doing this? I think people are afraid to look at their own mortality. Um, if I get this down on paper, uh, what is that going to say um, uh, for me? The other thing that I have had is do I really trust somebody to make that healthcare decision for me? Um, am I going to be able to trust my agent? Or um, can I trust the medical um, community to really follow through with what I have written in my advanced directive. Um, and I think that that gets to be um, kind of an issue in itself. You know, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement has got some statements out, and one of them is, you know, really defining, uh, respecting end of life and how that varies. Because for one patient, it may be you did something for me that I didn't want. I was ready to go. I was ready, you know to, um, I was ready to allow a natural death to occur, but you did something that I didn't really want you to do. And then you can look at the other piece of that where um, somebody might pass away and you might have a family member say, well, you didn't do everything for them you should have. You know, so it really kind of depends on what side of that coin you're looking at um, when you are deciding, you know, what does this person want? I think you hit a key distinction when you said to let natural death occur, I know probably a lot of providers struggle in their communication about end of life, and and I like that phrase that you used. Well, our, actually, our book says, um, you know, the do not resuscitate, and, you know, we should ask for do not resuscitate order. I'm very specific when I talk with families um, and when I talk with people writing their advanced directive. Um, I let them know 
um, you know, I've had couples, which is interesting, and they'll say, well, I don't think I could put, pull the plug on you. Um, and when I talk with them, I say, you know, when we get put on machines and when we get put on um, uh, different, all of the different tubes and stuff at the end of life, that really is the unnatural part of it. Um, when we remove those things, we're allowing a natural death to occur. So I try to keep them away from, we're going to turn the machines off, we're going to pull the plug, um, we're doing this to mom or we're doing this to dad. It's more about, um, you know, we're allowing nature to take its course and we are allowing a natural death to occur. And I think that we really need to kind of change um, the way we talk about that a little bit with families and um, with people when we're helping them to write and talk about end-of-life issues. Yeah, I agree. And I see... I think it's hard also, we use the term, do not resuscitate, or do you want CPR, and do you want to be intubated and have artificial breaths for you, but people see what's portrayed in movies, and they see CPR being done, and a person pop up and automatically be at the level that they just were at, right, prior to whatever event caused them to need the CPR, and so I think we have a false perception as a society that CPR is is very successful and very benign too. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. When we go through um, uh, an advanced care directive with someone uh, with a person, we really do talk about you know um, what would you want in the situation where you could not speak for yourself. And you know when we talk about artificial respiration, we talk about you know there's always an advancement. It may start with a tube down your throat, but if it gets to be long-term, they may want to do a tracheostomy. Or a tube feeding may start with a little tiny tube through your nose, but may end up with a gastrostomy tube in your stomach. So there's always kind of this progression of things when, when we're looking at going into an unnatural state of keeping somebody alive when their body is kind of saying, you know, I'm not, I'm not ready for this. So it's like we do talk about... Um, we do talk about the progression of those things because it isn't just we're just going to do this and and you're just going to live forever. I mean, there's all these complications that even come with those things. So um, that's kind of an eye-opener for people. We try to make it pretty realistic when we're talking about um, those type things. There's something like um, less than 3% of people who have CPR even in the hospital, I think, return to their normal mental state mm -hmm. uh, and physical state afterwards. That's absolutely right. And I think people don't understand who aren't in the medical field that during that time you're losing oxygen to the brain. So um, if we're doing really good, adequate CPR, you may get less of that, but certainly the lack of oxygen to the brain is damaging and we don't always have the mental capabilities that we had prior. Absolutely. And also when we do CPR, if you're doing CPR appropriately, then you're probably breaking breaking some bones, mm -hmm. which isn't always a pleasant thought. We talk about that and also the fact that uh, when a person has one or more comorbidities, uh, chronic disease processes, whether it's diabetes, cardiovascular disease, um, you know, di uh, kidney disease, that that just decreases those chances, again, of that working. You know, and, and the more we have, the more chronic disease we have, it really affects that. Um, it's interesting, though, you know, there's so many people that come in, and it's amazing to me that maybe um, over 65, even in their 80s and 90s, that are just like, 
yes, I want you to do everything you can. I, you know, so um, uh, people don't really, I think we get so used to living with the chronic disease um, that we don't really always see it as anything that's that abnormal for us. You know what I mean? If you think of hypertension and some of those right. things, I think people sometimes just live with it so long, they don't see it as maybe being a detriment. Right, um, right if you were trying to do something like that. Yeah, and I think a lot of the attitude is just, well, if we can do something, why wouldn't we do it? And so it's important to take that step back and go, what are the consequences of doing this? And um, when when it's done, when that treatment is done, are people going to return to their previous level of function or are they going to be dependent on others and wouldn't necessarily want that? And I usually let them know, you know, that I have seen people that have had CPR that have ended up in a nursing home that weren't prior to having it just because like you talked about that oxygen deprivation and they just were not able to go back into their home environment. So what are the steps in completing the uh, advanced care plan? Well, um, I will give some information at the end on how someone can get a hold of us to do that. But what we generally do is we just sit down with people and we start talking through our booklet. And and I think that the number one thing that people really need to think about is who do I want to have as an agent and who do I want to speak for me on my behalf? Um, I think that people need to consider, you know, most of the time people will consider a spouse, um, but I think you need to think about does that spouse have any type of uh, memory issues? Is there anything going on that they may not be here to be able to make decisions? Um, So I think we need to think about that. A lot of people have their children and some people think, well, I have four children, so they all four need to make sure that they agree. Um, I think people really need to stop and think about who is that one child or that one person in my life that is going to be able to make tough decisions for me if it comes down to that. And when I talk with families, I tell them, um, you know, yes, this document is important. Uh, you know, we want to get it, uh, we want to get it in your chart, um, et cetera, et cetera. However, the most important thing you can do is talk to your family and talk to your loved ones. Because when it comes down to it, are they going to be able to turn off the machine if they have to? Are they going to be able to make these tough decisions if you have said, no, I don't want dialysis? Are they going to be able to help you make those tough decisions and advocate for you? Because I think sometimes as healthcare um, uh, providers and practitioners and, and just what we do in general, we're trying always to save people. And I think that we really need to stop and say, what does this person want? What does matter most to them? Uh, what makes a good day for them? What makes life worth living? Um, and I think that we really need to stop and say, who is that person that I can name as my agent that's going to come and advocate for me within that hospital system or that medical field to say, no, mother did not want this or my sister did not want this. Does that make sense? Yeah, I really like that. And I think... Um I would add, so absolutely having that one family member, I would add that talking to your primary care doctor too is important because I think the primary care doc can be an advocate as well. And, you know, I I definitely have patients who end up in the hospital and gets referred to, you know, things that I know we've discussed and they don't necessarily want, such as um, dialysis or things like that. And so, you know, then we can follow up and say, you know, we've talked about this before. You've been pretty clear with me all along that this isn't really consistent with what you would want. Um, And then maybe put the brakes on some of those things. So I think, um, you know, getting the, the team involved is important too. 
I think that's wonderful because sometimes I think when they're in a healthcare crisis, um, you know, they just they just kind of forget. Oh, this is what I said before, and this, you know. And I think that yes, having your primary physicians and your primary healthcare team, you know, being an advocate for you as well, and saying, you know, when we talked about this, that doesn't quite sound like what you talked about maybe a few months ago, you know. So I think that's excellent. And I think a good point too about. You know, if you have several children and you're going to choose one, then you have to have a good conversation with all of your children that you've set this up. This is your one person who's speaking on your behalf. And these are all the things that we've talked about, because I think I've seen a lot of family uh, arguments and disagreements and and issues in in how to deal with that end of life. I think, oh, it's such a hard time because there's a lot of guilt that comes up in in family members. And so you really have to have those conversations that everybody has sat down and heard the same things. Yep. And and sometimes it goes back to what does mother want, you know, because everybody has that opinion. And some people still choose to have two people and say, I want them to have equal decision-making rights on this. But we really try to thin that out because it does make it very hard when you have eight children and everybody has an opinion, um, but it goes back to what did mom or dad want? Or, you know, it's like that's the conversations that need to happen, whether it's between the family or with the family and the healthcare team or however that may happen. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I would like to circle back to one other thing that you said, which was what matters most to an individual. And so yes. that can mean different things to different people. Um, what what do you usually talk about in that conversation in terms of what matters most? Um, what we talk about in, you know, we have some questions, in, and I think that what matters most fits absolutely right into this. Uh, we ask them things like, what, uh, what are the things that make life most worth living to you? Um, you know, what constitutes a good day? And for some people it might be, you know what, if I can't get out on the lake and fish, Life is not worth living to me. I don't have children. I don't have a lot of family left. And if I am not able to do these things, then um, then life is not worth living to me. Uh, some people may um, say, if I cannot be with my grandchildren and my children or cognitively, if I don't know who I am, life is not worth living. We also say, what are your beliefs about when um, uh, when life would no longer be worth living to you? A lot of times what we get are, if I don't know who I am, if I'm laying like a vegetable, if I have to go to a nursing home, those are the type of um, answers that we may get in that situation. Uh, We ask about specific medical treatments because some people are, um, I don't want to put them, I don't want to put the money into that. I mean, there may be medical or financial barriers to people uh, when they're looking at end of life issues, you know. Um, so we ask about all of those type of things. Um, uh, what uh, What are your thoughts and feelings about where you would like to die? And I think that's important to talk about. We ask if they are open to having palliative care in hospice, should they get a terminal illness. Um, we ask about burial versus cremation. Um, sometimes people want to donate their total body, so we need to make sure we have that paperwork attached for the hospital so that they know at the time of death, um, you know, that that person donated their body. So I think there's just a number of things, and it really depends on the person you're working with. Because 
I know I worked with a gentleman not too long ago that doesn't have a lot of family members, and he used his advanced directive basically as a directive to this is what I want to happen when I die. I don't want a funeral. I just I want don't want a prayer service. This is what I want. He didn't have anybody else that was going to be able to intervene for him. Where you might have another family that says, you know what, I have a prearranged burial plan, so all I want you to do is call the funeral home and take care of that. So it it just takes it it so um, varies compared, you know, for what the, who the person is that you happen to be working with at the time. And I think we as um, physicians need to kind of take things even one step further when we're talking to our patients about what matters most for them. Cause I can think of, yeah. you know, two, uh, two people, two men, you know, in their late eighties with very similar chronic diseases, you know, their heart failure and COPD and one, what matters most to him is, you know, two, two days a week, he plays cards with his buddies. And if, if he can't do that, then, then, he doesn't want to, you know, necessarily be around. And we had pumped him up with so many medicines for his heart failure that he couldn't stay awake through his card game. So we had to, you know, do a little adjustment and deprescribing in his medicines to get him feeling alert enough that he could go do that. And that, that made him happy and comfortable. He also had pain issues. So we had, we talked about, you know, what can we do to control your pain so you can play cards, but and so some of that was, do we necessarily need your statin medication anymore? And so kind of we treated him much differently than a, than a man who is very similar to him. Another 80-plus-year-old gentleman who has similar chronic diseases, whose desire is to um, live another two years until his granddaughter gets home from overseas. We kind of treated him a little differently because he was willing to live with some fatigue and some other things to get him that extra year, right? I think that's a wonderful example. Another thing that we look at um, when we're writing this out is, you know, um, is the person an organ donor and how do they feel about that? Um, And then we look at autopsy. Those are kind of the four areas, CPR, and then what would you want if you couldn't speak for yourself? Um, long-term, and that includes the artificial nutrition, tube feeding, IVs, those type things, respiration, and then organ donation and autopsy. Those are kind of the four areas that um, we address as we're doing an advanced care directive. Sure. So after someone fills it out, let's say they're on top of things and they've got it done when they're 65, when should they update it? Well, um, there is a... There are some suggestions uh, that uh, we people should look at them every decade, for sure. Um, if there's a death, and for sure, if there's a death of one of the um, of your agents. So when we're talking to spouses, I always let them know. You know, God forbid um, something should happen to one of you. If you're each other's agent, make sure that you get someone else named as your agent. Um, if there's a divorce, um, if there's a new diagnosis of a serious health condition, and then if there is a decline in health. So um, if somebody has a terminal diagnosis or something, um, then they, 
they should absolutely look at that and see if they want to update their advanced care plan. Yeah, I think that makes good sense. Um, good to stay on top of it. I think sometimes we kind of feel like, okay, it's done, checked that box. Now we don't have to worry about it anymore. But it's good to keep in mind that that is something that should be an evolving document um, as life changes. Absolutely. And, you know, I always recommend for patients that they take and they review it. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that have maybe had them in there for 15, 20 years and, oh, I know it's still good. And I'm like, well, just print it off and review it just to make sure that it, it, that it speaks to what you would want if something happened today. Um, and then what happens, uh, you know, uh, we get referrals from a lot of the outpatient physicians. We get referrals from inpatient uh, we have a lot of people that call from the community, so we try to get out and do a lot of community presentations and stuff um, so that we have people that are working on advanced directives from that standpoint. Um, but what we do, you know, we have a number, and what we do is we see um, ACP consults in four different clinics. So we do see people at South Point Clinic, Moorhead Clinic, West Fargo Clinic, and then North Broadway Medical Center. Um, and what happens when somebody comes to visit with us, and most of the time what people say is, oh, this wasn't near as painful as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> right. Um, uh, their appointment would include, um, uh, we would review their document if they started on it at home. Uh, we would notarize the document for them free of charge, and we make any copies for them and their agents. So we always recommend they give their agents a copy of their advanced care directive um, because the copies are just as valid and legal as their original copy. We scan that document into their Sanford um, record, and then, again, there's no charge. It usually takes about an hour to 90 minutes to help someone do one, kind of depending. We do a lot of couples together, so we're more than happy to do that. We're happy to go to, say, assisted living facilities and do these as a group if we have five, eight people that are interested. I mean, I think however people can get these done, I think that it just um, makes sense. I think it's it's a thing that we, we all need to do, even though it's not something you want to do, but it just makes that that very stressful and time of life much easier for family that, that you're leaving oh. behind. And, and it, you know, as patients start to decline, and I have had some physicians call and say, you know, can you meet so-and-so in my office? Because they're struggling, and I think that this is a talk that we want to have at this point. So I've gone over and done that some. And I think there's a lot to be said for um, offering people this choice of conscious dying. And, you know, it might not be that you only have a month or two months, but as things start to decline, it's like, who are you talking about your wishes? Um, it's never too soon to talk about the things that are important to you spiritually um, financially, physically. I mean, it's just never too early to talk about those things. And I think the more we can look at helping people to die consciously, um, maybe it will alleviate some of that fear that we have about death in our society. And um, and people just, you know, I can live forever, or my mother can live forever. And, you know, that isn't the way it was for our great-grandparents. I think a lot of times what scares people is lack of control. And so yeah. not that you can control every situation, but certainly having some guiding principles that are important to you that help your care team do give you a little more control or choosing not to go into the hospital or making choices that um, will help you, you know, have, have what's important to you. I know uh, when we had visited with one person, they were very um, adamant that, you know, yes, I don't want to have pain, but I also want to be conscious about what is going on. 
right. because I want to be able to be, talk to my family. I want to be, you know, so sometimes I think it's both, it's, it's the patient laying in the middle of the room um, and everybody else is kind of doing their thing. And it's like, how do you bring it back to this is the reason that we're here and how do we make this um, the best experience that we can for the family, but more importantly, for the person Absolutely. who is at the end of their life. You know, I just think it can be a very sacred um, time. Yeah. And hopefully by doing this and thinking about one's wishes, they can kind of elevate what happens yes. uh, through that period and make it, like you said, make it a sacred and hopefully um, not terrible experience. Yes. Because it's going to happen to all of us. Exactly. That's, you know, that's just the way it is. It's going to happen to all of us. So how can we help others through that? And how can we maybe start to alleviate some of the fear? Um around that. Absolutely. Great information, Gail. I think this is really helpful and hopefully our listeners will find it to be really beneficial too. Yes. Can I give you a phone number that um, people can call if they're interested in setting up an appointment to write a healthcare directive? Definitely. We would love that. Okay. Um, They can just call. It's the Advanced Care Planning Office and that number is 701-234- Six nine eight zero. In fact, I should say seven zero one two three four six nine eight zero, and we'd be happy to um, either send out documents. Sometimes I've walked people through doing their document on the phone over the phone sure. um, because they don't necessarily have to be notarized. You can have two witnesses notarize them. Sure. But we're more than happy to walk people through this process. Um, they can have the form filled out prior to even coming in. We will send out the forms to people. Whatever we can do to make it the most uh, workable for them, we do go to people's homes. Um, if we know that we have somebody that is really housebound, I think it's very important that we try to get out there and help that population. Yeah. Um, there's a couple other populations I'm very interested in working with advanced care planning on. One is the homeless population. Um, because I think that there's a lot of people out there that could really use some help in this area. Absolutely. Uh, so that is one of the populations that um, I would really like to see um, us make some changes in. And then some of the very chronic um, disease processes like ALS. And I, I think that that stuff does happen, but I think sometimes we're, we um, people are ready to go and we're not ready to let them. Sure. So I think that just the whole conversation could happen um, so that we make sure that person is getting, you know, listened to. I agree. And I think doing those, like you'd said before, earlier rather than waiting, you know, helps people have a little more control on that whole situation for a longer period of time. So the earlier, the better. Exactly. So we had a, we had a gentleman that um, had ALS and he wouldn't do an advanced care directive. And his sister called me and said, you know, would you be interested in working with him? And I said, well, why don't you do one at the same time? And, um, and uh, I will talk with him about it. And, you know, he ended up doing one, and I think he passed away like three weeks or so after that, but he did it on his own terms, sure. right? yeah. you know, yeah. in his living room with his big screen TV, watching soccer. Um, he did it on his own terms, and, and I think that's basically what he wanted. And um, I think sometimes as family members, or, or they think that they need to go with what we want for them versus this is what I want. I'm done. I'm tired. You know? Well, I, I thank you so much for having such a passion about this because it is so important. And, uh, I hope that we've convinced 
a number of people to to give a call and to to work on their um, advanced care planning and and get that paperwork filled out. Yes, and I think I thank the two of you for the work you're doing in this area as well. Um, I think we'll have good partnerships to maybe start increasing um, the number of people that we're able to get through the doors to get these written. So. Absolutely, yeah. Yes. Well, thanks, Gail. Oh, you guys are so welcome. You have a wonderful day. You too. You too. for us today, Kirsten. Yeah, so recently I was searching on Pinterest and found this soup recipe that I am in love with. Um, My husband thinks it's okay. My kids think it's okay. Some of them really like it. Some of them don't, but it's it's pretty good. So it's a um, chickpea, kale, wild rice, squash, fall soup. And it's the recipe is vegan. They use, um, I think, cashew milk to make the broth and Mm -hmm. some broth. Um, we, I'm allergic to nuts, so we have used either coconut milk or just regular milk, but it's fantastic. Um, kind of the perfect comfort meal. And not only is it comforting, it's really healthy too. Um, just has lots of good stuff in it with some vegetables and things too. And so we'll post that on our show notes. It sounds great. We certainly have hit a soup weather with our zero degree day today. So that'll be something to look for. Exactly. Well, you can find all the links from today's show and um, phone number and resources and things in our show notes. And that is available at www.everythingdoc.com. We'd like you to write some comments and give us advice uh, and feedback on future episodes and um, other things you'd like us to discuss. Um, You can also follow us on Twitter or Facebook. And our email is mail at everythingdoc.com. And our handle on Twitter is EverythingDoc1. I think on Facebook you can just search for everything your doc wants you to know and that'll come up too. So we always love hearing about um, topics that you would like to learn more about or things that you're interested in. And, um, or, you know, if you have had successes or stories you'd like us to share, we're happy to do that as well. Yeah. Cheers to uh, 2020. Absolutely. Thanks so much for listening. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.